Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Next week's program, and the title is The Historical Evolution of U.S. Federal Elections. What is the trend? The speaker will be Dr. James Tagg. Now, the election, of course, as we all know, is next Tuesday, and Canadians are just as interested as anybody, so I welcome you all to come next week and find out what Dr. Tagg thinks of what has gone on. So I would call, will I? I'll call um, Ted Haney back to the podium. Just, just remember that um, we are on radio, and so I would ask that if you have a, a question, to go to the mic just prior to the next, the person ahead of you finishing, so that there's no lull in, in the conversation. Please be brief. Please tell us your name. And we will go from there. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is uh, John Zinstra. I am not a cattle producer. I'm a farmer, but not a livestock producer. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Haney, for uh, the very informative talk. And uh, it's a very upbeat talk. Lots of good news, and I appreciate that. John, thanks. My question is, the... The problem was found in the States in September the 4th, and I guess you know the rest of the question already. Two weeks, nothing happened, and then from the government or from the CFIA, we didn't get no straight answers what was going on. What happened? What was the holdup? What was the – did they think it was going to go away or sweep it under the rug? Or what's, it was so funny, and it seemed like there's something else behind the whole situation. Was this way an act to get rid of the Nielsen brothers or not? I'm just questioning it. I don't know. Sure. Thank you. That's a good series of questions. Um, first off, I, I've never been much of a, uh, a conspiracy, con uh, uh, you know, conspiracy theorist, and I, and I don't think that 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 that's happening here. If every time uh, E. coli O one five seven H seven uh, was found in a in a food processing plant, or a distribution center, or in a supermarket, or a restaurant. If every time a single case was found, that business was shut down. Virtually no meat packers, produce packers, supermarkets, or cold storages would be in operation. The reality is, a standard part of practice is uh, combos. Typically, it's seven one-ton combos are combined into a lot. They drill in a pre-agreed-to pattern and pull out samples. They homogenize those samples and test for E. coli 0157H7 all day long, every day. And when there's a positive, that lot is moved off to, uh, to cooking or disposal. And so, you know, a positive single test is, in fact, expected from time to time. In Canada, the CFIA asked companies to voluntarily um, recall 
all of their products, so all of the whole muscle products, all the steaks and roasts, whenever that random testing would go above 5% positive 015787. And statements by, by CFIA said that this company uh, did not do that during the seasonal high 015787 period, which is in our summer, July, August, September, that they did not recall. The company's defense said it was voluntary, so therefore didn't carry the same weight of a mandatory recall of these whole muscles. So the risk primarily is in ground meat, and so that's why these, these, these ones are tested. So a positive test down at the border, and, and the U.S. tests uh, more intensely for 0157 than we do, and uh, I believe it's because of a cultural difference between our countries that introduces more risk in the United States of this bacteria, and that's because how many of you have been asked at a U.S. restaurant, how would you like your hamburger cooked? I have been. How many times have you been asked in a Canadian restaurant, how would you like your hamburger cooked? Never. And in fact, I've, I've heard people refused when they've asked for a medium-rare hamburger. In fact, the server usually looks at them like they've got two heads. So it, it's a different risk. Uh, they found it because they test all incoming trimmings uh, from Canada, the United States, Mexico, and all other. Uh, they test all of the incoming uh, product. As the USDA tests all product leaving U.S. packing plants, it's, it's a higher level of testing. That's where it was found. A single test does not require a plant to close. Because there wasn't increased testing during the summer period, that's the other statement the CFIA made, is that the company, when it went over 5%, ordinarily you test at this, at this one level to test if you have a problem, and that's test for, for presence. And if it shows up more than 5%, then you're supposed to increase your testing uh, significantly to estimate what the prevalence is. Uh, how much of the problem is, and, and CFI said the company didn't do that either. So those are two risks. I don't think this is a matter of somebody trying to get somebody. Uh, clearly and early on, um, it was obvious that the CFIA and the XL ownership and management didn't see eye to eye. Very quickly, it appeared to be a stalemate, and it appeared to be some form of conflict. No matter how calm people were talking in public, I think uh, most people looking in from the outside could see that there was not a lot of goodwill. I think all of that's reset with new ownership. Hi, my name is Henning Mundell. While your talk uh, dealt to a large extent with the Excel Foods and uh, uh, the past and future and uh, in relation to the E. coli, I, and you did make brief reference to BSE, and I just wonder, with the JBS now taking ownership of XL Foods, that that one real great irritant during the whole BSE thing, the politicization, um, ignoring the, f the fact of the high degree of integration between the Canadian and U.S. beef industry, that JBS Foods is a strong enough player to help Canadian beef get across that border in case of one BSE cow in somewhere in Alberta. Uh, thanks, and I'd say the hopeful purchase of JBS of this plant. Right now, they're just taking over management and completing their due diligence. So I hope that they would go through the purchase. If they don't buy it, I don't know who will or at what price. That's, that's a big question that's out there. 
So uh, the president, Bill Rupp, said, we intend to go through this quickly. We intend to do the purchase, and we intend to do it as fast as we can and quicker than what has initially been, been announced. So that's good. BSC is now a different disease than it was when, when it first was diagnosed in Canada. And, uh, you know, we've had uh, some 30 cases. The U.S. has recently had a, uh, another case. Uh, in our last many cases, no, uh, no, no countries closed their doors and nobody closed their doors to the U.S. in its last case. The problem was we were the first trading nation to truly have the risk, uh, uh, you know, uh, be diagnosed and, and to, to, to grapple with this disease as a trading, as a trading nation. Um, we've come a long ways in regulation since then, so I don't think that's, uh, you know, I don't think that that's an issue that's going to raise its head in the same way. Not to say a new novel disease will not, will not be a risk to us in the future. During BSC, Tyson and Cargill were great friends of the Canadian beef industry in their lobbying in Washington and elsewhere to try to reestablish trade. And RCAF, based out of our great uh, neighbors in Montana, were some of the most ardent opponents of our industry. And um, I just, every, every day I think about that anti-trade, anti-Canadian, anti-industrial uh, organization, um, I get a very bad taste in my mouth because they throw science to the wind, they whip up anti, uh, anti-sentiment, and it's cost us billions. So um, I, I think that uh, having JBS uh, running the plant, they, is all, they also would be a great friend to, uh, to our industry if there's a trade issue between our two countries. Yeah. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. At last week's session, which I'm sure you've been told about, we had a scientist telling us about various um, scientific sides of E. coli. And there were a number of questions which he said, well, you better ask Ted Haney about those. He'll be able to answer them. You see, I can't deal with that side of things. Yeah, the guy who talks first can always say that. <laughs> At our table over lunch after listening to your talk, we were still mystified about what actually happened in the plant in terms no. of what went wrong in the plant. I mean, was it just a management issue? Was it a hygiene issue? What was it? You did say that the new operators will get the plant up to speed, but what does that actually mean? That's one question. The other one was, I'd like to know whether you want to comment at all on the mechanical tenderization of beef, because that seems to be a source of cross-contamination. Sure. Thank okay. you. Uh, cross-contamination, uh, first, there's been a lot of work to allow that uh, use of jacarding or, uh, or mechanical tenderization in Canadian retail, Agriculture Canada research has done a lot of work on it. Health Canada has reviewed that work as well as others, and have found it not to be a significant source of, uh, not a significant source of, of risk. Otherwise, Health Canada would yeah. never have allowed it to to be used in in, in Canada. Right now, uh, Agriculture Canada is considering, and Health Canada will make the final decision of whether to label cooking your products to. Uh, and there's debate whether it be 60 or 70. Colin Gill's uh, uh, research in, in Lacombe has, has clearly indicated that uh, mechanically tenderized using uh, pre-treated high E. coli contaminated meat, the product is rendered safe at 61 degrees. So that's medium rare. Uh, the reason that it hasn't been, and again, that's in a research challenge environment where you're really, really checking it in the worst of possible situations. The reason that this hasn't been uh, uh, regulated to date is because we don't have a history of food safety contamination associated with, with uh, mechanical tenderization. If we did, then on a regular basis, uh, 
anybody buying product at, at places that do mechanical tenderization. And in Costco, for example, the pre-cut, pre-portioned uh, steaks were mechanically tenderized. All of the products purchased in vacuum packages were not. And yet consumers were neither more or less sick with one or the other over time. So this may well be more of a uh, regulation against the uh, concerns of the day and uh, more um, academic risk versus true risk assessment. I mean, the risk assessments were done to allow the use. Now this is going to be a, a risk uh, a risk response, and that's always kind of a different a different deal. Well, we'll may well end up with. Uh, uh, labeling, if they do, I hope it's at 61 degrees and not 70. If it's 70 degrees, which will have to take, you know, the means the steaks will cook well, it'll bring an end to, uh, uh, to mechanical tenderization. And quite frankly, that intervention works, particularly with, uh, uh products like, uh, Eye of Round, of, um, uh, strip loins that can be somewhat variable and, uh, top, top sirloins to some degree. It takes out the uh, lack of variability. It takes out the variability and makes them uniformly tender and increases satisfaction. If that doesn't increase food risk, then that's a good intervention. What happened, uh, you know, I, we're all at the outside looking in and, uh, w- you know, the, the, uh, ownership said very early on, uh, to their employees, we have plumbing work to do. We have water work to do. And uh, since then, the CFI said that nozzles in the uh, in the uh, carcass wash, which is the primary decontamination uh, step after dehiding. Dehiding is where the greatest potential for cross contamination happens because it's the outside can touch the inside. You, then you have to wash the surface of the uh, carcass fully. They said there were plugged nozzles, uh, so that that would indicate to me that they weren't getting a full coverage of, of water at the right temperature, and um, and therefore there's the there's the hole. And and and, and people intuitively think our greatest risk of 0157H7 E. coli would be during the winter time when there's lots of tag on cattle. In fact, not the greatest risk is in the summertime. That's when young cattle uh, on grain tend to uh, have a higher level of E. coli 0157H7, and that's when they're shedding. So it, it's uh, it's kind of a, a counterintuitive uh, bug, but it's it's something that increasingly we will have to deal with. Hello. <laughs> Great presentation. My name is Joseph Natuck. I wanted to ask you your opinion of self-regulation. To me, it's been a point of contention not only with beef, but all kinds of other things, including environmental assessments and so on. So could you give me the feeling of what you think now that you're in a position to speak boldly about this issue? (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, uh, even when I worked for Canada Beef Export Federation, it never moderated my willingness to speak openly. Um, Self-regulation is... The Canadian meat industry is one of the more highly regulated uh, sectors of the Canadian economy, period, uh, as compared to fish and, and, and even as compared to some of the regulations in the poultry sector, um, is a very high, highly regulated, highly controlled entity. I believe that there is a role for the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. I believe that its role is rightly in oversight, monitoring, audit, and, and the final decision on whether to uh, give license to operate because of the potential risks to... Um, uh, to consumers, particularly, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with meat products. So I, I do believe that, that there's a role for that. What we have today is not self-regulation. Uh, we have a Canadian Food Inspection Agency with, uh, with uh, I think, 6,000 employees operating with 300 spots across the country, uh, and a great deal of their investment is in meat hygiene, which has not never had a reduction in, in investment. Um, but to say that that... 
if I don't support whatever self-regulation is, if if I think that that the end the the end game of food safety is a government inspector, then I think I've got it wrong. Um, companies have to invest continually in their social contract to operate, and that means that everybody downstream from them, their 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 distributors, supermarket and and food food service clients and consumers that buy from them, have to be confident that these companies are doing the right things every day. It is those companies that will go bankrupt and go out of business, the ownerships, if they do it wrong. It's, it's the companies that will lose customers if they no longer show themselves to be proper uh, corporate partners uh, in safe food trade. So at the end of the day, the, the, the absolute primary responsibility for food safety is the companies, always was, always will be, and the, uh, and the, the government is there to uh, ensure that they continue to do what they say they're going to do and they do it, do it correctly and they do it all the time. So it's, it's a combination of the two. Compliance verification system is what people call self, uh, self-inspection and that's the, there used to be a myth that uh, the CFI inspectors, there's no more, no less than the packers uh, in the facilities because of the change of system. Uh, the old system said that the that their inspectors would be directly in charge of, you can do that, you can't do that, I saw you do this, you have to stop that, you need to do more of that. The reality, that was a myth. There was never enough eyes, and you would almost have to replace all employees as government inspectors to have eyes on every single action in the plant. So they modernized it to say, we are going to be in charge of compliance verification. We're going to have the overall view. We're going to look at statistical sampling, review all of the data supplied, and we're going to approve the system under which you're going to operate, the HACCP system, and and then we're going to spot and routinely uh, check as we go through, and that's in addition to maintaining their direct responsibilities for inspecting every single animal before they come in to ensure that they appear healthy and inspecting every carcass, every offal set, and every head of every animal physically for signs of disease. So... I think there isn't any self-inspection, and I don't think there has been any. Terry Shillington, thank you for your presentation, Ted. Um, You're welcome. um, I'd like to raise the political uh, dimensions of this. Uh, When this uh, uh, blew up in the House of Commons in the question period, the suggestion was made that uh, there have been uh, cutbacks in in the uh, inspection process and and underfunding and and under authority under too little authority and um, so would you comment on that as to whether at a political level the the federal government has been <coughs> needs to better fund food inspection and uh, and and give CFIA more authority than it apparently it had in that circumstance. Um. BSE was very good for the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. They added more than a thousand extra staff during that period of time. Their budgets were increased substantially uh, more and at a faster rate than the rest of the Government of Canada, which in fact all saw their operations expenditures increasing over the last uh, decade. There has not been any cuts proposed or any cuts mandated for the Meat Hygiene Division, which is the pointy end of the stick. That's inspectors in the plants. There's not been a reduction of the number of inspectors in any plant uh, at, at any time. Um, so, you know, gamesmanship happens all over the place, and I guess it happens in the House of Commons too. So the opposition's role is to oppose and to, you know, to question and, and to challenge um, and that's what they were doing. Um, I don't believe that the 
industry should ever use food safety as a uh, basis of competitiveness. We are all in this together, producers, processors, even competing processors. When it comes to food safety, it is a singular team, cross-training and best practices, uh, and that's been seen to be the case. I think politically, lessons can be learned there. I don't think that's helpful to our industry, nor do I think it's helpful to the inspection process, nor do I think it's helpful to the production of safe food to have the kinds of debates that were had in the, uh, in the House of Commons. I think it's gamesmanship. Good theater, though. Thank you very much, Mr. Haney. My name is Frank Toth. I just got new hearing aids, and I'm, I'm a little loud for a change. But anyway, you've already answered one question about the difficulties that the ranchers in, in Montana and Washington are screaming about this. But I think they do have some merit that they, they take over the Canadian industry here. Uh, it's going to minimize the uh, competition, in both in price to retailers and, of course, what they pay the farmers. We witnessed that at Cargill and the same plant. Uh, I happen to have worked for Safeways many years, and at 90, my memory is still good on prices. It's, it's, it's really raised since these two took over the meat industry, so it has merit. But the most important question I'm going to ask is, the United Nations has all overtaken over the, the discussion on the tremendous effect that these corporations that even control the feed for cattle, hogs, and chickens, with, with, the, with, the, uh, uh, with the addition of hormones. Babies are born now 75% fat, and the, the, their mother's milk, the food, the grain, everything else, with hormones is causing tremendous tr increase in heart problems. Now, uh, uh, it's very, very serious. Now, how do you feel that these same people that control the feed industry are using hormones and how it's affecting? Th this is the fact. The United Nations just took, a, took up the, the, the discussion on it. Thank you. Yep. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, having JBS here will increase competition in our local markets, not decrease it. You had a, simply a removal of one ownership. That's uh, the Dalson Brothers, an introduction of a new uh, ownership, JBS. There's no love lost between JBS and Cargill. A lot of the senior management in JBS are former Cargill people, so they know each other's games, they know how to play it, and they're going to go head-to-head -head and they're going to fight hard against each other. Each one would love to have the other one someday go bankrupt because of the great uh, job in buying all the cattle out from underneath. So I, I don't think this is for Canada. I know there is no increased concentration because it's just a change of ownership. From the U.S. and from uh, what uh, RCAF says, I have to be totally honest, I just don't care. That group is so completely anti-trade, so completely anti-Canadian, so completely anti-almost everything that they're, I think they've lost their credibility in, in just so many different ways. So uh, if, they have, if RCAF has a problem, generally speaking, that encourages me to jump on the other side of whatever it is that they, that they do. Um, with respect to hormones, um, I know that the... Uh, United, uh, uh, that the European Union uh, Council on Veterinary Affairs has recommended adoption of the Canadian uh, animal production uh, systems and regulations with, resp with respect to hormonal growth promotants, and that was rejected by politicians and the political process in Europe. 
I work with the United Nations on a regular basis, and in fact, proper use of hormones have never been identified as a within as used in in uh, in our markets here with the products that we use, and and that would be all metabolics, whether that's hormonal growth promotants or uh, beta agonists, have never been found to uh, to be uh, problematic, and in fact, it is a UN aligned organization called Codex Alimentarius. Uh, which is based out of Paris. It's a multi-government organization aligned with the UN. Codex actually sets maximum residue levels and, and dosage levels for multiple species with each approved uh, different hormone and beta agonist, and, uh, and that, that continues to be the case. They don't regulate for unsafety. They regulate for safety. And, and so I'm not sure where the recent uh, reports are. What I have learned is that the UN is a large and ungainly organization that has many competing interests and will will uh, give both right and left signals, up and down signals, white and black signals at the same time depending where it comes from. But its scientific bodies have maintained very clear consistency, use of science and the regulation of proper products in the production of, of uh, livestock uh, for food. And, and uh, again, Codex has, has done an excellent job in doing this and they maintain maximum revenue maximum residue level guidance and dosage levels. I, I, just, I just don't think it's – I don't think that's the source of our, of our um, uh, major health issues in, 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 in the world or North America. Thank you. I'm Avatanas from Picture Butte, and thank you for your uh, expressing your opinion about uh, foreign investment. It's most interesting. I thought we were going to hear about what we learned from the uh, E. coli uh, problems we had, but if we haven't learned much, that's fine. We can learn some other time. Uh, on the foreign investment, when the BSE hit, about a half a year later, a friend and me, we wrote a letter to Ottawa asking them that we could go to Japan, ask, talk to people from the bank, that they build a plant here and do their own butchering and their own and send their own meat home, do their own testing. The word was no, because we want a level playing field. A few years later, a uh, beef plant was opened in uh, north of Calgary that had the promise from CFA that they could test them all for BSE. And once they got gone and other powers to be found out that this was going on, that CFA said, no testing. When you can't test them, you have no market, you have no bank, you go bankrupt. Why is our government, through the CFA, holding us ransom to foreign powers, whether it be political or multinational. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That was a really difficult and uh, and 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 um, uh, conflict-ridden time, and um, I would I would uh, say that uh, it was amazing that I kept my job during uh, a, a significant part of BSE because the organization that I was with asked me to go out and advocate strongly for the permission, the voluntary permission, for individual companies to, to test for BSE in order to regain complete access to, to Japan. And I did that faithfully. And uh, I ran the edge of, uh, of losing my, my job for uh, years on end as a result of that. That said, um, while this one organization, Canada Beef Export Federation, for a period of about 18 months did advocate for that. All other industry associations in Canada that I know of advocated against it. The Alberta uh, Beef Producers, the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, the Canadian Meat Council, uh, and, and, and many others strongly advocated against it. 
The Canadian uh, Food Inspection Agency did not want to validate what they felt was an inappropriate uh, trade restriction of Japan by agreeing to test. Right or wrong, that was their, their view. So our government, unfortunately, was not uh, alone in this. Industry was by far lined up not to allow it as compared to lined up to allow it. And yes, in fact, Rancher's Beef did uh, apply for uh, permission to test and uh, met as far as I knew, all of the uh, basic requirements, except for one that they could not meet, and that the CFI went through all the things that you had to do to in order to initiate testing, but one was also the general consent of industry. And uh, even Rancher's Beef, with the strong partners they had in the cattle industry, could not achieve a general consensus of the industry, uh, even in Alberta. So it was a very tough time, and, and, uh, and I think there were strategic errors that were made at the time, uh, but quite frankly, that is now of historical interest. This will be the, this will be the last question. Uh, this is just uh, thanks for your talk, Ted. My name is Beth Moyer. This is just looking for your views on maybe from a cook's point of view. Uh, we heard last week, and also you mentioned that when testing is done at the plant, and there's a certain number of E. coli present, that food gets sent to the cooker. Yep. So why didn't this happen with the meat instead of it, it being thrown into the landfill when there were all these people that weren't, weren't able to work, were depending on paychecks? And so that's one question. And the other one is about tenderization. Um, at one time, I think we all had our little mallets that we melted away and hammered away and to break up the, the fibers to yep. tenderize. And we also heard last week about marinating even herbs help with that. And are we just getting lazy that we're depending on the retailers to do this for us, that we're not doing this in our own homes? I will never, ever talk about the intentions and the uh, energy levels of people preparing food in my house. <laughs> at the best, that would be folly. And at, at the worst, I'd be a very hungry person. Um, but on, on tenderization, as I said before, uh, Agriculture Canada did extensive research on that intervention prior to Health Canada allowing it for use in retail, and the extra level of risk was found to be very low, particularly with a uh, medium-rare level of cooking, which covers, and that's in the worst case, a medium-rare level of uh, 61 degrees cooking uh, solved the issue. So, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's, uh, I think it's a, a proper intervention uh, for, a range, for a range of cuts. If now we need to add labeling uh, to that, hopefully reasonable labeling, uh, and it can continue, I think people have better eating experiences than what they uh, had before. Maybe our industry's got too good at uh, providing too many cuts that are very tender, and so now we're just protecting against that 10 to 15% or 20% of products that aren't quite up to snuff. I'm not sure, but times have definitely uh, changed. I was saying at my... Uh, at the table over, over lunch. I myself still, particularly with strip loins, uh, to a lesser degree, but also top, top butt sirloins, uh, I still palpate and I'll, I'll feel the, before I put it on. And invariably there's a knot or a, a you know, connective tissue bundle. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have a jacquard system of, uh, of needling. I use a fork. And, uh, I trust that that fork is safe and I trust that the, uh, the, the cutting board that, that I put the steak on while I go to work on it is, uh, is also, uh, clean. And, um, and then, and then I, I put it on. So I, I use mechanical tenderization, uh, myself in my, in my own house. But I think in general society, it provides a higher level of, 
of, uh, of, of eating satisfaction, and, and that's a good thing if it doesn't introduce uh, risk. And sorry, the other question? Oh, yeah. Yeah, again, cooking, uh, there, none of this product, uh, there's no cooking facilities in Western Canada to carry, you know, to, to, to take care of 5,000 tons of, of product. This is a very large volume of product that would have to be diverted to cooking uh, facilities. Almost all of those are in the United States. The USDA did allow for the importation of this uh, recall product as long as it's uh, detained directly to uh, to cooking uh, facilities in the United States. So you have to detach people not working, people needing food locally, and this product going to uh, cooking facilities. I don't own the product, so it's not mine to decide. Uh, it did raise my eyebrows, and quite frankly, even if it would be a zero-sum game where uh, the costs associated with transporting the product, uh, unpackaging it because it was frozen in bags and boxes, would have to be defrosted, uh, unpackaged, and then cooked, uh, it may well have been more expensive to do that, even even though there's some residual value uh, in the in the product. Um, again, if it, it would be the same financial out, outcome, I would have hoped that product would have been sent for cooking because I think it is important to maintain the nutritional value of a product we produce. And I think even at the level of honoring the sacrifice of the animals that went into that product is, is important. Uh, but the reality is I don't know if, uh, if use of landfill was a less expensive option and it wasn't my product anyways. But uh, it's always better if you're able to maintain the nutrition of product that we produce. There are multiple uh, companies in the United States. There's very, very little cooking facilities like that in Canada. And oh, they're selling then, these cooking companies then sell the cooked product uh, to food manufacturers for soups, for, for uh, sauces, uh, and for pre-cooked meals. Uh, there's also some pre-cooked burgers that, that uh, you can buy. All of these kinds of, of products is what's produced uh, out, of these, uh, out of these companies. Uh, most of the capacity is in the United States, and it just goes into the general market after that. But always at a, at a steep discount uh, when sold to these companies. They're good at what they do. They make products safe, but they don't like paying a lot for their input product, especially when it's frozen, boxed, and bagged. That's a huge cost to unpackage all that product. So it was an unfortunate thing. But clearly, I think, uh, who wasn't frustrated? I think the ownership was frustrated. They wanted out. They'd obviously made the decision that they were going to not be in this business and, and that some level of the negotiation had been completed with JBS. And I, I just sensed uh, a frustration and uh, bring this to an end uh, as fast as you can. I, I sensed that anyways. Thank you very much, Mr. Haney, for a very interesting discussion. Thank you.